Well, thank you all for being here this morning. We are continuing on in our study of a systematic and theological study of the person of God. This morning, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're not going to look at uh, additional attributes of God, but we're going to try to tie together some of the threads of what Pastor Peter has spoken about over the last few weeks. And uh, over the last few weeks, we've gotten a number of questions for either clarification or he said this, I'm not sure what that means. And so I asked Pastor Peter, could you do one week where you just kind of explain some questions that people had? He told me no, but he said that I, I could, I could, is that not how it happened? Don't, don't worry about that. The, the issue is, is that these, these topics are complex and there's a lot of moving parts to them and it's impossible to cover everything each week. And so we, we will certainly be leaving some things out. And if we do that, please come and ask us uh, questions. We want to make sure those are addressed. Well, this study is a study of the person of God. It is the knowledge of God that ought to be our number one priority, right? That should be the number one thing that we seek in life. In our pursuit of this knowledge, we don't just study to know more things about God. However, we study to know God himself. He is our end goal. This is a helpful quote by J.I. Packer in his seminal work, Knowing God. He asks, what were we made for to know God? What aims should we set ourselves in life to know God? What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? Knowledge of God. John 17, 3, this is life eternal, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. He asks, what is the best thing in life, bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else? Packer says it's the knowledge of God. He goes on to say, we study the attributes of God, not to know his attributes, but to know the God whose attributes they are. God is the end goal. And so this course over the last few weeks, and it will continue to be teaching you about God. But a question, knowing about God is not the same as knowing God, is it? Two very, very different things. And so we could ask ourselves, if these two things are so different, what's the benefit of knowing all these things about him? Is this a pointless endeavor just to learn all these new facts about God? Or is there some benefit? I think there's tremendous benefit in that fellowship with God entails our walking with God in light of what we know about him. Now compare these two things. On the one hand, imagine before I met my spouse. She has a, a long list of all the, the many great things about me. Okay? She, she, that, that's, that wasn't meant to be funny. She's got, a, she's got a long list, okay? She, she can, she's memorized. She knows everything about me. She knows my favorite food, where I went to school, where I grew up. But is that the same as actually knowing me? Not at all. And in fact, if it's things that she likes to hear, she might say, I, I would love to get to know him on the basis of what I've, I've heard. But on the flip side, can my wife actually say that she knows me if she knows nothing about me? No, what does that mean that she would actually know me unless she knows my character, how I respond in situations, how I, I care for her? And so the more we know about someone, the deeper our affections for that person will be. I want to read you a, a, a helpful statement 
This is by someone that's been uh, just tremendously influential in my life. He's a professor by the name of William Lane Craig. And I have this in your, in your notes. And he says, when we grasp God's love, then we will be drawn to him in turn and want to respond and love him. When we truly comprehend God's holiness, then we'll turn away from our sins without lo- with loathing and we'll reverence God with awe. When we understand God's aseity, then we will fall on our faces before him in humility. When we see God's power, we will go forth for him in confidence and triumph. When we learn of God's omniscience, then we can trust him in his guidance as we go through the trials and valleys of life. And we can quit depreciating ourselves and understand and accept ourselves rightly as those who are beloved by God. So knowledge about God and his attributes can be extremely valuable. The more we know about God through what he has revealed to us and walk in light of that knowledge, the more we know him, the more deeply we trust him, and the more fully we will love him. These things, I think, are helpful as we understand the attributes of God. So, the question before us this morning, who is this God that reveals himself to us? And let me just apologize in advance. I saw how thick the notes were that they handed out. I did not anticipate that much notes. So we'll, we'll see how we do. So knowing God will help us to understand his attributes. And we're going we're gonna to go to the board this morning. Pastor Peter gave me permission to go to the board. I'm not sure if that's the, the permission that I needed, but that's what we're going to work with. So who is God according to the scripture? God is an infinite personal being. This is very important. He's an infinite being, and he is a personal being. Can everybody see that? That's far back. This is in your notes as well, but it also helps me to kind of walk through it. So what does it mean to say that God is infinite? It means that God transcends, that he is above and wholly distinct from all of his creation. So you'll see in your sheet that there's a chasm between the infinite God and all the rest of creation. So man, animals, inanimate objects. We see that? These, the creation doesn't share in the infinite. There's a chasm between this. But what does it mean to say that God is personal? Well, on the personal aspect of God... Man finds himself on this side of the chasm, separated from animals and rocks. Now, can everybody see that okay? Now, the distinction between the God of Christianity and the God of of really any other religion in the world, you have many gods that are personal, don't we? The Greco-Roman gods, they were finite, small gods that interacted personally with the creation. On the other hand, you have religions like Hinduism and Buddhism that have this sort of impersonal, infinite force. But only the God of Christianity is both infinite and personal. Now, what does this do for us as we consider the attributes of God? Well, 
there are attributes of God that fall within his infinite category. And these are things that Pastor Peter has already covered. So the aseity of God, that God exists independent of anyone else. The omnipotence of God. The omnipresence of God. The immutability of God. Which one am I missing? Omniscience. That's true. I didn't know. I'm not omniscient. Okay, so we see that these categories, when we understand that God is both infinite and personal, we see that these fall under a category that belong only to God. Does that make sense? Theologians will use the term incommunicable attributes to get us awake this morning. And, and Wayne Grudem, in his book, uses this term as well. This means that there are attributes of God that he doesn't communicate or share with his creation. And in a few weeks, Pastor Peter's going to work through some of the personal attributes of God, the love of God, the knowledge of God, the wisdom of God that God does share with his creation. Now, something that has to be stated, it's important that we never overemphasize any one of the attributes of God over another. And we, we run into a whole host of issues when we do this. We, we, we can't say that this one is based in this. All of God's attributes are eternally existent and present by God at all time. Our culture hates this, don't they? What, what attribute of God does our culture love to emphasize? That's right. Well, God would, God would never say that somebody couldn't marry who they want to marry, right? He's a God of love. God, God would never require a woman carry her child to term if that inconvenienced her life. He's a God of love. Now, what, what do we often say in response to that? We say, but God is a God of holiness and he's a God of justice. And I think that that's an okay response. But I think a better response would be, and God is a God of love and he is a God of holiness and he is a God of justice. We have to keep the entirety of God's attributes in mind. With that, I'm going to turn now to a few questions that we've gotten over the last few weeks. Some of these are, are a little challenging questions, but I think that working through them will help us understand a little bit more about the attributes of God. The first question has to do with God's omnipresence. We're going to use Pastor Peter's definition here. He says, God is immediately and fully present everywhere and at all times. God is immediately and fully present everywhere and at all time. So here's our question. If God is immediately and fully present everywhere and at all time, why do some passages in the Bible indicate that God is more present with some than others or closer to some than others? And in some instances, it even says that God is absent. How are we to make sense of this? Well, here are a few verses that suggests what this question is getting at. And I have these in your outline. Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Isaiah 55, 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Psalm 23, 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For what? You are with me. 
Well, let me just pause there. Couldn't David's enemies at that point say, David, God's also with me. Don't you understand omnipresence? He's not any more with you than he is with me. Why are you praying and thanking him that he's going to deliver you from your enemies? He's with me too. Maybe something else is going on here. We'll look at this from a different perspective. Proverbs fifteen twenty nine: The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. Psalm 10, 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? So if God is everywhere all of the time, what do we have going on here? While God is actually always present everywhere, the way in which God relates to people in different circumstances is different. So when the Bible speaks of God being near the righteous and far from the wicked, these aren't terms of God's locational proximity, but rather of his relational proximity. Does that make sense? Yeah. So he's not actually farther away from unbelievers than he is believers, but he is relationally. Now, we use these terms all the time. If, if I could be sitting next to my wife on the couch, why are you so distant from me? Or, I know you're right here, it feels like you're not even present. Now, husbands, we, we become intentionally obtuse at that point and say, what are you talking about? I'm sitting right here next to you. But we know exactly what y'all mean. We just don't want to engage at that level. So we, we're familiar with these terms, right? That the Bible can use the same way that we use relational terms to speak of God's relationship with us. Now, there are a few points of application that I think can be uh, gleaned from this. Perhaps God does feel far from us. Perhaps he does feel distant. Perhaps when we pray, it, just, it doesn't feel the same like it used to. And so what, what can we make of this? Well, number one, we are to remind ourselves that God is not actually distant. Right? In a, in a real sense, God is actually present. He's always close. He always sees you and knows what you're going through. But he could be relationally distant for two reasons that, that I, I thought of. Maybe there's more. One, maybe God wants you to seek him. You know, perhaps we're, it's easy, and I know I am, I get easily distracted by all the things in front of me that sometimes I, I don't seek after God, and then I find myself just completely miserable. Why am I so miserable? Well, maybe if God was constantly obviously present to me, I wouldn't have a need to seek him. The psalmist in Psalm 63, 1 says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Do we seek for God this way? Perhaps God has veiled himself to draw the hearts out of his people. Jeremiah 29, 13 you will seek me and find me when what? When we seek for God with all of our hearts. And so there is a sense in which our ultimate reward is finding God. And so when we ask ourselves, God, why are you distant? Maybe he is not distant. Maybe he has temporarily veiled himself so that his people would seek after him so that he may be found. The next reason that God may seem hidden is quite simply because of sin in our life, right? The Bible says that we can quench the Holy Spirit. We can grieve the Spirit of God. Now, 
I can hear people saying, well, wait a second, I thought, I thought our sins were removed by Jesus. Weren't our sins forgiven? How could my sin still be an issue between me and God? Well, judicially, yes, our sins have been forgiven. And final judgment has been allayed. God has removed his wrath. But that doesn't remove the temporary consequences of sin. We may deal with it, and we will deal with the temporary consequences of sin for our entire lives. And certainly we'll also deal with the relational consequences of sin. I'm reminded in Isaiah chapter 1, this unrepentant, wicked Israel goes before God and their hands are lifted in prayer. And he says, I I close my eyes, I hide my eyes. Even though your prayers multiply, I do not listen. Your hands are covered in blood. So we have to ask ourselves, is God veiling himself because he wants me to seek him? The answer is always yes. But is he veiling himself because of sin in my life? And I've got unrepentant sin that needs to be dealt with. Okay, question number two. And this is a fun one. I guess they're all fun. If God is actually present everywhere, does this mean that God is also in hell? Yes. Okay, next question. <laughs> Not satisfied with that. Now, probably like, like you, I've, I've always heard that hell is the absence of God's presence, right? It's the separation from God. And there's a, a verse here in 2 Thessalonians 1.9. Paul says, unbelievers will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. If God is everywhere, though, like omnipresence states that he is, how can unbelievers actually be out of his presence? Well, this again is not referring to God's actual presence, but is referring to his relational presence. God is very present in hell. But the purpose of his presence isn't to bless. It's to curse. It's for judgment. It's a very different presence, but it is in fact a presence. I think part of our misunderstanding is our misunderstanding over what hell is. When we think of whose domain hell is or who does hell belong to, what do we typically think of? It's Satan. We typically think this is Satan's domain. He's, this is his house. He is the king of the castle of hell. But who does hell really belong to? It's God. Hell is God's domain. It's what he has established to bring about his wrath on the unrighteous. So this is not Satan's domain. God is very, very present in hell. Grudem gives us a, a helpful thought here. He says, this is on page 208, the idea of God's omnipresence has sometimes troubled people who wondered, how can God be present, for example, in hell? This difficulty can be resolved by realizing that God is present in different ways and in different places, or that God acts differently in different places in his creation. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Amos. We're going to look at a terrifying picture of God being very present in judgment. The book of Amos, we're in chapter 9. The more we go digital, it's interesting. You hear the less pages turn. I'm like, why aren't they turning in their Bibles? But you are. Amos chapter 9. We'll start in verse 1. 
This is in response, by the way, to a, a wicked and unbelieving Israel. This is the Lord's response. Amos says, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake, and shatter them on the heads of all the people, and those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol from there, shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven from there, I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel from there, I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. How terrifying. God's sole mission with unrepentant Israel is for their judgment. Every target that God shoots at, he never misses. And the target here is an unrepentant Israel. But... To end this part on a high note, for the believer, this is not the case. Even though God is just as present with the unbeliever as he is with us, the psalmist in Psalm 1611 says, Lord, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. How different. The same God is present in both areas, but in a much different way. Okay, we're going to look at one more question here. This one's going to be focused on the immutability of God, the fact that God does not change. And we'll use Pastor Peter's definition here. His definition is helpful. God cannot experience any change whatsoever to his nature and character. God cannot experience any change whatsoever to his nature and character. We see this, a well-known passage is in Psalm 102. Of old, you laid the foundation of the earth. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. So God existed before heaven and earth were created. And after heaven and earth are permanently changed and destroyed, God will be there. He brings about all the changes, yet the psalmist says, he is the same. I'm going to read this great thought by the Dutch theologian Hermann Bavink on God's immutability. He says, The doctrine of God's immutability is of the highest significance for religion. The contrast between being and becoming marks the difference between the creator and the creature. Every creature is continually becoming. It is changeable, constantly striving, seeks rest and satisfaction, and finds this rest in God, in him alone. For only he is pure being and no becoming. Hence, in scripture, God is often called the rock or the anchor. Isn't that one of the things that give us such peace, that God is never changing? As we go through the storms of life, we lean back on God our rock. And so the immutability of God is so helpful for us to understand and dwell on. So in light of that, here is our question. If all these things are true about God, and God is said not to change, 
Why does scripture say that God changes his mind about certain things? I'll tell you the, the first time we, my wife and I, we, we facilitated a number of alpha tables over the years. And you always have that fear when you lead your first one. What kind of questions are they going to ask me? Are they not going to talk? What's this going to be like? In one of my first alpha tables, someone brought up this question and my back was sweating it was terrifying. So, but the good thing is, is I didn't know the answer then, and it forced me. Let me go. How do I make sense of a God that doesn't change, yet on the other hand, he seems to be changing? Well, let's think through this. Turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus 32. This is perhaps one of the better known examples of God allegedly changing his mind. Exodus 32 Does anyone remember what was going on in Exodus 32? What's that? Yep, the golden calf. Israel's high priest, who's supposed to faithfully represent God and God's people, is building a golden calf, bowing down before it and calling the golden calf Yahweh, God's unique name. And God's response to them is not good. We're in verse 11 here of chapter 32. Then Moses entreated the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak, saying, with evil intent, he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your, to your people. What a, what a bold request. From Moses. Lord, just change your mind. Don't bring about the harm for this horrible thing they've done. He petitions God, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens, and all this land of which I have spoken I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord changed his mind or relented about the harm which he said he would do his people. Now, beneficial for the Israelites, right, that God changed his mind in this situation. But what do we do with this as it relates to the immutability and the changelessness of God? Is this a problem for God's immutability? I don't think that it is. And and Grudem gives us a, a helpful resolve. He says, these instances should all be understood as true expressions of God's present attitude or intention with respect to the situation as it exists at that moment. If the situation changes, then of course, God's attitude or expression of intention will also change. This is just saying that God responds differently in different situations. So, what God has laid out from eternity past is, if this happens from my people, then I will do this. He creates these conditional scenarios. But if this happens with my people then I will do this. And scripture is is full of these. The entire book of Deuteronomy is Israel. If you obey me, I will bless you. If you continue in your unrighteousness, I will curse you. And a nation from afar is going to come and bring you into captivity. The entire book and much of the Bible is much like this. So scripture is full of these conditional situations. Let's look at at one more and we'll we'll close on this note. Turn with me to the book of Jonah, chapter 3. Jonah, chapter 3.
We'll look at verse 4. It says, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. Because of their unrepentance and unrighteousness, the Lord told Jonah to issue this decree. Go down with me to verse 8. Let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw that they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. You have an instance where Moses petitioned God, he prayed to God, and God did something differently. He worked in his plan from eternity past that if his people seek him, the outcome would be different. Here, if the people would repent, God stayed his hand and allayed the wrath that would inevitably come. And isn't this also how we, how we view prayer? When, when we pray for God and ask him for healing or we ask him to change certain circumstances, aren't we saying, God, we pray that you would do something differently than what we assumed you would have done had we not prayed? Isn't that how we can view prayer? Do we, do we think that God is changing his mind in this instance? Not at all. God wants his people to seek him, and the results of that, we see it all throughout scripture, are quite clear. So, in closing, does God act differently in different situations? Does this impact the immutability of God? It does not. God is free to express himself differently in different situations while his nature, his attributes, his purposes, and his promises for us remain unchanged. Well, guys, that's all for this morning. It looks like we might actually have a few minutes if anyone does have a few questions. Yep. 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 So I was, I was, I was hoping somebody wasn't going to. Yes. Yes. Okay. So what's. Yeah, so the question is, is how, how does this work with, with God's predestining certain things? Anyone want to take a stab at that? This can be, this can be interactive. Well, I think there, there are certain things that are conditional uh, by God. I think that that's not true of everything. I think that there are certain things like we've seen if the people do this, then they don't. But I also think in some ways, and I want to be careful here, but because we want to keep the, the tension of Scripture in balance. On the one hand, Paul says anyone that calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So if you do this, you will be saved. If you don't call upon the name of the Lord, you, you won't be saved, right? Now, that doesn't deal with the secondary question of, okay, well, then why do people call upon the name of the Lord? Which is kind of your question. The, the underlying question, we know people call upon the name of the Lord, because God has quickened their hearts and has drawn men to him. But, but the, the statement is still the same. If I call upon the name of the Lord, I will be saved. And if they don't, then they will not be saved. I don't know if that adds to the confusion or brings clarity to it at all. Okay. Pastor Peter, you want to you take a stab at this one? Okay. That's good. 
All right, next question. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's definitely a way that we could look at it. God God knew that Moses would petition him, and knowing that he would petition him, this would be the outcome. But in the hypothetical scenario that Moses had not petitioned him, even though God knew that that wouldn't actually happen, then God would not have removed his wrath. So I think, I think that's a, a, an appropriate way to look at it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to be careful, too, about God's omniscience, because I don't want to say, especially when it relates to salvation, that God knows who would do something or choose him, and then in response to him looking through this corridor of time, then God responds and saves them because he knows what they would or would not do. That, that's kind of a different way to approach that, but I think that, I think that way is, is helpful. Mr. Cliff. Thank you, Nathan. It doesn't work. Oh, slow. Uh, so how does this um, relate to these different attributes of omnipotence, omniscience, and, and omnipresence? You know, in terms of how we can think about what God will or can or chooses to communicate versus, you know, something else. I don't know if that's a good question or not. Ask that one more time. No, it was it was it was good. It's it's. Oh, okay. Uh, just the, what can God? How much of this is incommunicable, and how much can God communicate, so that we can comprehend and grow in our understanding of these things? If that's any better. Yeah, so, <clears throat> I don't know if I've got if I've grasped the question yet. Yeah, I'm not sure if I have. <laughs> Well, that's right. What we've covered so far are typically considered the incommunicable attributes of God. They're, they're a part of the infinite aspect of who God is that we don't share. We're, we're, we are wholly dependent, right? God is independent. We, are, we have very little power, and our power is, comes from another source, God. So the, these are things that God reserves for himself, and the rest of creation is separate from. But... On the personal side, the love of God, God, as human beings created in God's image, we certainly, to some degree, not to the infinite degree that God would have these attributes, certainly share in those attributes. The love, the wisdom, we have an ability to reason that the rest of creation doesn't have. So God does share, certainly, some of his personal attributes with us. So could you put another list on the right-hand side here that says love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, general self-control? We could, yeah. Yep, good. Maybe one more question. Now go back a little bit to Annabelle and, and Wendy's comments about that there is <clears throat> in God and his sovereignty who he is and also the human side of, of our decision making. There is a is a tension there that God possesses that certain things we don't quite understand. And that's intentional. And, you know, we know that the secret things belong to God. And part of his um, decision-making is, yes, there is this, this cloud point 
that we can't always say if Moses did, if then, then, because the sovereignty of God always governed it. But there was also always a valid choice. And there's a tension there that the Bible doesn't explain. And that's part of who God is. And I know it's kind of a cop out answer in, in a way. Oh, you just got to write that secret thing. No, 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 no. If God was like us, then we could explain everything. You know, but because he isn't. It's not the best. Thank, thank you, Todd. Yeah. I, I think that that is helpful because, like Todd says, quite honestly, the Bible does have that God is completely sovereign in control of all things. And it also says that human beings do make real choices. And so that we run into trouble when we elevate this to the exclusion of this or elevate this to the exclusion of this. We have to keep them in tension, and, and the end result might be I don't know exactly how they work together, but we just want to affirm clear things that the Bible clearly says. That's right. That's right. And there's a balance too, because sometimes we can say, well, the secret things belong to the Lord. So I, you know, I can't begin to even understand. So I'm not going to even try to search at all. And then we veer into laziness. We don't want to go that right at all either. Right? So there's a balance between know that God's communicated so much about himself that we can know, but then know that we can't maybe figure it out or satisfy our mind in every little instance. So that's helpful, Todd. Well, guys, I think that's, uh, I think that's time. Thank you all so much for coming out this morning. You'll have a great Sunday.